This episode, Chapter 2 of Barnum's Humbugs of the World. This is it. This is the real thing. You've heard about it on the radio and seen it in the papers. Ten big acts for the price of one ticket. Behind this curtain, you'll see the Fiji mermaid, the giant red bat, the six-foot man-eating chicken. They're all real, and they're all on the inside. You'll see the Ethiopian glass eater. What are you waiting for? Admission is free to Bellycast, the podcast of the carnival and sideshow. You're just in time. We're going to have a free show. We're going to bring out the strange people, the weird people. Here they come now. Watch the doorway. You'll see what they do. You'll hear what they talk about. They're all alive on the inside. Get your ticket and come in. Ballycast presents news and interviews with performers and showmen. Some important words of warning. This podcast is not family friendly. I'm not even thinking about it. So listen at your own risk. The performances and stunts described are not safe even for experienced performers. Never attempt them without the direct supervision of someone who already performs them. Please use your common sense. And if you don't have any, stop listening now. Here's your host, Wayne Kaiser. Welcome to Bellycast, episode 159, brought to you free by Blue Ridge Entertainment. For showmen, performers, and fans of the sideshow, carnival, and variety arts. The feature segment of today's show, part two, from P.T. Barnum's book, The Humbugs of the World. Also, news, Eli A. Smith of Nome with his dog team, has just arrived here. Good luck to him, Theodore Roosevelt. A favorite carnival food recipe, and much more. Keep repeating to yourself, it's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's Ballycast. Here we go. Keep your hands and arms inside the car and remain seated until the ride comes to a complete stop. News. Ballycast is now on Amazon Music and Audible. All episodes will remain downloadable free from Ballycast.com, but it's nice to have an additional source for those who want to hear it that way. When you go to a fairground with the music, the lights, the rides, the girls and the boys screaming, it's an atmosphere you could never buy. September is World Funfair Month. In the UK, since the 11th century, fairs were granted charters not just for amusement, but as hiring fairs where laborers found employment, farmers found employees, and people of all sorts found goods they couldn't get locally, always on the condition that the fair takes place every year on the same date or the city would lose the right to use the land. During World War I and World War II, and now during the pandemic, many charters protected their rights by the attendance of a single ride. Through the wars, the government actually commissioned fun fairs to open, to lift the spirits of people. And, and I'd like to think that would be our job again, that hopefully we'd be able to lift the spirits of the people through after this terrible pandemic. In America... Fairs and carnivals depend for their continuation on local municipal sponsorship, using established contact which wise businessmen on both sides would be reluctant to abandon. Six women across the pond founded Future for Fairgrounds to explain to everyone the importance of the fair. There's a link on the podcast episode webpage, so be proud to say I am a showman. I am a shaman. We are shaman. I'm a 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 shaman. Ich bin ein Schauspieler. I'm a showman. I'm a showman. I am a showman. 
We are Shilman. Ich bin Schauspielerin. Jai Aire Tivoli Director. Many of the best adventures start with a bet. In 1905, a sports promoter wagered Alaskan mailman Eli Smith $10,000 that he could not deliver a letter from the Nome Postmaster to the Postmaster General of the United States in Washington, D.C. This was at a time when Henry Ford's automobile had only been available for two years, but the terms of the bet were that Smith had to do it by dog sled, he had to arrive by 1907, and he had to reach D.C. with at least six of his original ten dogs. Smith left Nome on November 14, 1905, with a team of ten dogs and wolves. He traveled across Alaska on his dog sled, took a boat from Valdez to Washington State, and then drove the sled onward. In Wisconsin, three of his dogs died when they ate poison a trapper had laid out for foxes. The sled was equipped with wheels for terrain without snow. The long and daring journey captured the attention of Americans, 
and many waited along the route to see them pass. Eli Smith and the remaining seven of his team pulled into the White House driveway, having traveled over 8,000 miles in 15 months on February 20, 1907. At the White House, he was greeted by President Roosevelt and his sons, Archie and Quentin, and the boys mushed the sled around the grounds. Smith delivered his letter, and the president wrote him a note saying, Eli A. Smith of Nome, with his dog team, has just arrived here. Good luck to him. Theodore Roosevelt. Smith told newspapers that he hoped his trip to Washington will cause you boys and girls to study your maps and geographies more about Alaska than you have done in the past. At the time, Alaska was a federal district, it became a U.S. territory in 1912 and eventually achieved statehood in 1959. Hungry? Then treat yourself to a luscious barbecue sandwich. Doesn't that look good? Wait till you taste it. Rich and savory with that open pit barbecue flavor, along with your choice of hot coffee, a cold soft drink, or some wonderful ice cream that you'll also find in our snack bar to tempt your palate. And remember, they're pit-cooked barbecues, prepared the southern way. Here's a recipe very well suited for serving at the fair. Lentil Sloppy Joes. Filling, nutritious, cheap, and vegan. What more could you want? Start with a half a pound of lentils, one large yellow onion, one small green pepper, optional, one cup of ketchup, sugar or sweetener to taste, two tablespoons of oil, flour tortillas, large or small. Boil the lentils in water until very soft and drain well, about 30 to 40 minutes. Chop the onion coarsely and mince the green pepper if you're using one, and fry both gently on a medium heat in the oil until the onion is transparent. Add the ketchup and sugar or sweetener. Stir in the lentils. Once it's done, serve it in a tortillas. Small ones can be just folded in half or large ones wrapped like a burrito. Do not overstuff the tortillas. You may want to fold an additional chopped onion or your choice of hot sauce. Enjoy! The nice part of it is, there's one waiting for you now at the refreshment stand. And now a word about one of our most popular products. In our online shop, here's one you'll use. From 1948, the full set of directions for making a blade box. The classic blow-off that earns dollars by the hatful. The blade box lines them up with dollars in their hand and sends them home happy. Why would anybody pay an extra dollar to see a magic trick? It works like this. Now, Sheila is going to step behind the curtain for a moment and remove her costume. We're not doing this to be lewd or crude. She must remove her clothes to be able to perform this act. Here, honey, just hand out that costume. I'll fold it up nice for you. And now, she will recline in the cabinet, and I'm going to close the lid. Notice that the lid has openings for 13 steel blades. I'm not going to cut this beautiful young lady, because as I insert each blade, she's bending twisting and contorting her body in and around every one of these blades of steel, just like a snake, just like a rubber band, she can bend and stretch as these blades threaten to sever the most delicate parts of her body. And now, I'm going to give you a chance to come up on stage and see for yourself. Sheila has agreed to expose herself to your gaze, so you can come up here to see how she does it. You're going to see how her amazing body can twist around these razor-sharp blades. You're going to see the glint of the cold steel against the texture of her skin. Sheila feels that exposing her secret and her body this way is worth one dollar because she's paid only through your curiosity and your generosity. Just hand your dollar to the man at the foot of the steps and come up and see this beautiful little girl in the state she is in now, unashamed and waiting for you to view her. 
digitized and carefully restored in PDF format for just $4 for a real piece of carnival history or a great working blow-off that still plays today. Use the link on the podcast page. In 1866, P.T. Barnum published The Humbugs of the World, an account of humbugs, delusions, impositions, quackeries, deceits, and deceivers generally in all ages. This reading is edited and much condensed, the second of the book's ten parts, this chapter called The Spiritualists. The Davenport brothers held seances in New York City afternoon and evening in a small hall. The manifestations mostly consisted in the thrumming and seemingly rapid movement about the hall of several stringed instruments, the room having been made entirely dark, while the boys were asserted to be quietly seated at the table in the center. Two guitars, with sometimes a banjo, were the instruments used, and the noise made by the spirits was about equal to the united honking of a large flock of wild geese. Not only was the sense of hearing smitten by the dreadful sounds, but sometimes a member of the circle would get a striking demonstration over his head. At the request of the controlling spirit, made through a horn, the hall was lighted at intervals during the entertainment, at which times the mediums could be seen seated at the table looking very innocent, as if they had never once thought of deceiving anybody. On one of these occasions, however, a policeman suddenly lighted the hall by means of a lantern without having been specially called upon to do so and the boys were clearly seen with instruments in their hands. They dropped them as soon as they could, and resumed their seats at the table. Satisfied that the thing was a humbug, the audience left in disgust, and the policeman was about to march the boys to the station house on the charge of swindling, when he was prevailed upon to remain and farther test the matter. Left alone with them, and the three seated together at the table on which the instruments had been placed, he laid at their request a hand on each medium's head. They then clasped both his arms with their hands. While they remained thus situated, as he supposed, the room being dark, one of the instruments, with an infernal twanging of its strings, rose from the table and hit the policeman several times on the head. Then a strange voice through the trumpet advised him not to interfere with the work of the spirits by persecuting the mediums. Considerably astonished, if not positively scared, he took his hat and left, fully persuaded that there was something in it. When sitting with a person at the table, as they did with the policeman, one hand could be taken off the investigator's arm without his knowing it, by gently increasing, at the same time, the pressure of the other hand. It was an easy matter, then, to raise and thrum the instrument or talk through the horn. The father of these boys, who had accompanied them to New York, took them home immediately after that exposure. In Buffalo, they continued to hold circles, hoping to retrieve their lost reputation as good mediums by being not more honest, but more cautious. To prevent anyone getting hold of them while operating, they hit upon the plan of passing a rope through a buttonhole of each gentleman's coat, the ends to be held by a trusty person. The plan did not always work well, however, for a skeptic would sometimes cut the rope and then pounce upon the spirit. That is, if he didn't happen to miss that individual on account of the darkness and while trying to avoid a collision with the instruments. To secure greater immunity from detection and to enable them to exhibit in large halls, which could not easily be darkened, the boys finally fixed upon a cabinet as the best thing in which to work. They depended for success 
entirely upon the presumption of the audience that their hands were so secured with ropes as to prevent their playing upon the musical instruments or doing whatever else the spirits were assumed to do. Their cabinet is about six feet high, six feet long, and two and a half feet deep, the front consisting of three doors opening outward. In each end is a seat, with holes through which the ropes can be passed in securing the mediums. The bolts are on the inside of the doors. The mediums are generally first tied by a committee of two gentlemen appointed from the audience. The doors of the cabinet are then closed, those at the ends first, and then the middle one. By the time the end doors are closed and bolted, the Davenports have loosened the knots next to their wrists and slipped their hands out. A lady's flesh-colored kid glove stuffed with cotton is sometimes exhibited as a female hand, a critical observation of it never being allowed. It does not take the mediums long to draw the knots close to their wrists again. They are then ready to be inspected by the committee who report them tied as they were left. Supposing them to have been securely bound all the while, those who witness the show are very naturally astonished. It is a common thing for these impostors to give the rope between their hands a twist while those limbs are being bound, and that movement, if dexterously made, while the attention of the committeeman is momentarily diverted, is not likely to be detected. Reversing that movement will let the hand out. The great point with the Davenports in tying themselves is to have a knot next their wrists that looks solid, fair and square, but they can slip it and get their hands out in a moment. Most committees know so little about tying that anybody, by a little pulling, slipping, and wriggling, could slip his hands out of their knots. If the Davenports were exhibiting simply as jugglers, I might admire their dexterity and have nothing to say against them. But when they presumptuously pretend to deal in things spiritual, I consider it my duty, while treating of humbugs, to do this much at least in exposing them. The spirit rapping humbug was started in Hydesville, New York, about 17 years ago by several daughters of a Mr. Fox. These girls discovered that certain exercises of their anatomy would produce mysterious sounds. Reports of this wonder soon went abroad, and the Fox family were daily visited by people from different sections of the country. Not long after the strange sounds were first heard, someone suggested that the sounds were, perhaps, produced by spirits, and a request was made for a certain number of rap if that suggestion was correct. The specified number were immediately heard. A plan was then proposed by means of which communications might be received from the spirits. An investigator would repeat the alphabet, writing down whatever letters were designated by the raps. That the raps were produced by disembodied spirits, many firmly believed. False communications were attributed to evil spirits. The answers to questions were as often wrong as right, and only right when the answer could be easily guessed. In Buffalo, where the foxes subsequently let their spirits flow, a committee of doctors reported that these loosely constructed girls produced the raps by snapping their toe and knee joints. That theory, though very much ridiculed by the spiritualists then and since, was correct, as further developments proved. Mediumship has come to be a profession steadily pursued by quite a number of persons who get their living by it. There are various classes of mediums, the operations of each class being confined to a particular department of spiritual humbuggery. 
Some call themselves test mediums, and by insisting upon certain formulas, they succeed in astonishing if they don't convince most of them who visit them. It is by this class that the public is most likely to be deceived. J.V. Mansfield has been called the Great Spirit Postmaster, his specialty being the answering of sealed letters addressed to spirits. The letters are returned, some of them at least, to the writers without appearing to have been opened, accompanied by answers purporting to be written through Mansfield by the spirits addressed. If the job is nicely done, a close observer would hardly perceive it. Mr. Mansfield does not engage to answer all letters, those unanswered being too securely sealed for him to open without detection. To secure the services of the Great Spirit Postmaster, a fee of $5 must accompany your letter to the spirits, and the money is retained whether an answer is returned or not rather high postage that. The spirit postmaster fails to get answers to such questions as these. Where did you die? When? What were your last words? How many were present at your death? But if the questions are of such a nature as the following, answers are generally obtained. Are you happy? Are you often near me? And can you influence me? Have you changed your religious notions since entering the spirit world? It is to be observed that the questions which the spirit postmaster can answer require no knowledge of facts about the applicant, while those which he cannot answer do require such knowledge. I will write a series of questions addressed to one of my spirit friends, enclose them in an envelope, and if Mr. Mansfield or any other professional medium will answer those questions pertinently in my presence without touching the envelope, I will give to such party $500 and think I've got the worth of my money. An aptitude for deception is all the capital that a person requires in order to become a spirit medium, or at least to gain the reputation of being one. Backing up the pretense to mediumship with a show of something mysterious is sufficient to ensure the making of converts. One of the most noted of the mediumistic fraternity, whose name I do not choose to give at present, steadily pursued his business for several years in a room in Broadway in this city, and succeeded not only in humbugging a good many people, but in what was more important to him, acquiring quite an amount of money. His mode of operating was the ballot test, and was as follows. Medium and investigator being seated opposite each other at a table, the investigator was handed several slips of blank paper to write the first names, one on each paper, of several of his deceased relatives, which, being done, he was desired to touch the folded papers one after the other till one should be designated by three tips of the table as containing the name of the spirit who would communicate. Questions written in the presence of the medium were answered relevantly, if not pertinently. Investigators generally did their part of the writing in a guarded manner, interposing their left hand between the paper on which they wrote and the medium's eyes, and they were very much astonished when they received a communication couched in affectionate terms with the names of their spirit friends attached. By long practice, the medium was enabled to determine what the investigator wrote by the motion of his hand in writing. Nine out of ten wrote the relationship first that corresponded with the first name they had written. Therefore, if the medium selected the first that was written, they in most cases referred to the same spirit. He waited till the investigator had affirmed the coincidence before proceeding, for he did not like to write a communication from your Uncle John 
when it ought to be your father, John. The reason he did not desire inquirers to write the surnames of their spirit friends was this. Almost all Christian names are common, and he was familiar with the motions which the hand must make in writing them. No fact was communicated that had not been surreptitiously gleaned from the investigator. An old gentleman from the country one day entered the room of this medium and expressed a desire for a spirit communication. He was told to take a seat at the table and to write the names of his deceased relatives. The medium, like many others, incorrectly pronounced the term deceased the same as diseased. The old gentleman carefully adjusted his specs and did what was required of him. A name and relationship having been selected from those written, the investigator was desired to examine and state if they referred to one party. "'Wow, I declare they do,' said he. "'But I say, mister, what has them papers to do with a spirit communication?' "'You'll see directly,' replied the medium, whereupon the latter spasmodically wrote a communication which read, "'My dear husband, I'm very glad to be able to address you through this channel. Keep on investigating, and you'll soon be convinced that I am happy in my spirit home, patiently awaiting the time when you join me here. Your loving wife, Betsy.' "'Good gracious!' "'But my old woman can't be dead,' said the investigator, "'for I left her to home.' "'Not dead!' exclaimed the medium. "'Did I not tell you to write the names of deceased relatives?' "'Diseased,' returned the old man. "'Well, she ain't anything else, "'for she's had the rheumatiz awfully for six months.' "'Saying which, he took his hat and left, "'concluding that it was not worth while "'to keep on investigating any longer at that time.' This same medium, not long since, visited Great Britain for the purpose of practicing his profession there. In one of the cities of Scotland, some shrewd investigator divined that he was able to nearly guess from the motion of the hand what questions were written. They tricked the trickster in other ways, one of which was to write the names of mortals instead of spirits. It made no difference, however, as to getting a communication. To tip the table without apparent muscular exertion, this impostor placed his hands on it in such a way that the pisiform bone, which may be felt projecting at the lower corner of the palm opposite the thumb, pressed against the edge. By pushing, the table tipped from him, the table being prevented from sliding by little spikes in the legs of the side opposite the operator. There are other ballot-test mediums, as they're called, who have a somewhat different method of cheating. They, too, require investigators to write the full names of their spirit friends, the slips of paper containing the names to be folded and placed on a table. The medium then seizes one of the ballads and asks, Is the spirit present whose name is on this? Dropping that and taking another, On this. So he handles all the papers without getting a response. During this time, however, he has dexterously palmed one of the ballots, which, while telling the investigator to be patient, as the spirits would doubtless soon come, he opens with his left hand on his knee under the edge of the table. A mere glance enables him to read the name. Refolding the paper and retaining it in his hand, he remarks, I will touch the ballots again, and perhaps one of them will be designated this time. Dropping among the rest the one he had palmed, he soon picks it up again, whereat three loud raps are heard. That paper, he says to the investigator, probably contains the name of the spirit who rapped. Please, hold it in your hand. Then... Seizing a pencil, he writes a name which the investigator finds to be the one contained in the selected paper. If the ballots are few in number, a blank is put with the pile when the medium palms one, else the latter might be missed. 
It seems the spirits can never give their names without being reminded of them by the investigator, and then they're so doubtful of their own identity that they have but little to say for themselves. Should the inquirers smell a rat and take measures to prevent the medium from learning in the way I've stated what question is written, the medium gets nervous and discontinues the sitting, alleging that conditions are unfavorable for spirit communication. What power there is in spiritualism! Some time before the presidential election, a photographer residing in one of our cities was engaged in making experiments with his camera, hoping to discover some new combination whereby to increase the facility of picturing the human form. One morning, his apparatus being in excellent order, he determined to photograph himself. No sooner thought of than he set about making his arrangements. He placed himself in a position, remained a second or two, then, instantly closing his camera, surveyed the result of his operation. On bringing the picture out upon the plate, he was surprised to find a shadowy representation of a human being, so remarkably ghost-like and supernatural that he became amused at the discovery he had made. The operation was repeated until he could produce similar pictures by a suitable arrangement of his lenses and reflectors known to no other than himself. About this time, he became acquainted with one of the most famous spiritualist writers, and in conversation with him, showed him confidentially one of these photographs, with also the shadow of another person, with the remark mysteriously whispered, I assure you, sir, upon my word as a gentleman, and by all my hopes of a hereafter, that this picture was produced upon the plate as you see it, at a time when I had locked myself in my gallery, and no other person was in the room. It appeared instantly as you see it there, and I have long wished to obtain the opinion of some man like yourself who has investigated these mysteries." The spiritualist listened attentively, looked upon the picture, examined other pictures, and sagely gave it as his opinion that the inhabitants of the unknown sphere had taken this mode of reappearing to the view of mortal eyes, that this operator must be a medium of special power. The New York Herald of Progress, a spiritualist paper, printed the first article upon this man's spiritual photograph. The photographer found it very profitable to oblige his spiritual friend by the reproduction of ghost-like pictures ad infinitum at the rate of five dollars each. Mothers came to the room of the artist and gratefully retired with ghostly representations of departed little ones. Widows came to purchase the shades of their departed husbands. Husbands visited the photographer and procured the spectral pictures of their dead wives. All who sought to look on those pictures were satisfied with what had been shown them, and, by conversation on the subject, increased the number of visitors. In short, every person who heard about this mystery determined to verify the wonderful tales related by looking upon the ghostly lineaments of some person who, they believed, inhabited another sphere. The demand for spirit pictures consequently increased until the operator was forced to raise his price to $10 whenever successful in obtaining a true spirit picture or to be overwhelmed with business that now interfered with his regular labors. About this time, William Cornell Jewett, with his head full of projects for restoring peace to a suffering country, heard about the mysterious photographer and visited the operator. I must consult with the spirits of distinguished statesmen. We need their counsel. This cruel war must stop. Brethren slaying brethren, it is horrible, sir. Can you show me John Adams? Can you show me Daniel Webster? Let me look upon the features of Andrew Jackson. 
I must see that noble, glorious, wise old statesman Henry Clay, whom I knew. Could you reproduce Stephen A. Douglas, with whom to counsel at this crisis in our national affairs? Such, here obtained, would increase my influence in the political work that I have in hand. With much caution, the photographer answered the questions presented. Arranging the camera, he produced some indistinct figures, then concluded that the conditions were not sufficiently favorable to attempt anything more before the next day. On the following morning, Jewett appeared, nervous, garrulous, and excited at the prospect of being in the presence of those great men whose spirits he desired to invoke. Then, overcome by his own thoughts, Jewett disturbed the conditions by changing his position and muttering short invocations addressed to the shades of those he wished to behold. The operator finally declared he could not proceed and postponed his performance for that day. So excuses were made until the mental condition of Mr. Jewett had reached that state which permitted the photographer to expect the most complete success. Everything being prepared, Jewett breathlessly awaited the expected presence. Quietly, the operator produced the spectral representation of the elder Adams. Jewett scrutinized the plate and expressed a silent wonder, accompanied, no doubt, with some mental appeals addressed to the ancient statesman. Then, writing the name of Webster upon a slip of paper, he passed it over to the photographer who gravely placed the scrap of writing upon the camera and presently drew therefrom the ghost-like but well-remembered features of Daniel Webster. Colorado Jewett was now thoroughly impressed with the spiritual power producing these images, and in ecstasy breathed a prayer that Andrew Jackson might appear to lend his countenance to the conference he wished to hold with the mighty dead. Jackson's well-known features came out upon call after due manipulation of the proper instrument. Next, Henry Clay's outline was faintly shown from the tomb, and here the sitter remarked that he expected him. After him came Stephen A. Douglas, and the whole affair was so entirely satisfactory to do it that after paying $50 for what he had witnessed, he, the next day, implored the presence of George Washington, offering $50 more for a spiritual sight of the father of our country. This request smote upon the ear of the photographer like an invitation to commit sacrilege. His reverence for the memory of Washington was not to be disturbed by the tempting offer of so many greenbacks. He could not allow the features of that great man to be used in connection with an imposture perpetrated upon so deluded a fanatic as Colorado Jewett. In short, the conditions were unfavorable for the apparition of General Washington, and his visitor must remain satisfied with the counsel of the great men that had been called from the spirit world to instill wisdom into the noddle of a foolish man. Soon after this, Jewett ordered duplicates of these photographs to the value of $20 more. I now have on exhibition in my museum several of the veritable portraits taken at this time, in which the well-known form and face of Mr. Jewett are plainly depicted, and on one of which appears the shade of Henry Clay. I need only explain the modus operandi of effecting this illusion to make apparent to the most ignorant that no supernatural agency was required to produce photographs bearing a resemblance to the persons whose apparition was desired. The photographer always took the precaution of inquiring about the deceased, his appearance, and ordinary mode of wearing the hair, then, selecting from countless old negatives the nearest resemblance, it was produced for the visitor in dim, ghost-like outline, differing so much from anything of the kind ever produced that his customers seldom failed to recognize some lineament the dead person possessed when living, especially if such relative had deceased long since. 
The spectral illusions of Adams, Webster, Jackson, Clay, and Douglas were readily obtained from excellent portraits of the deceased statesmen from which the scientific operator had prepared his illusions for California Jewets. The Banner of Light, a weekly journal, is the principal organ of spiritualism in this country. It has a message department, the proprietors of the paper claiming that each message in this department of the banner was spoken by the spirit whose name it bears through the instrumentality of Mrs. J. H. Conant, while in an abnormal condition called the trance. Thus, for instance, discourseth the ghost of George Lolly. How do? Don't know me, do you? No, George Lolly? I'm first rate. I'm dead. Ain't you afraid of me? You know, I was familiar with these sort of things, so I wasn't frightened to go. Well, won't you say to the folks that I'm all right and happy, that I didn't suffer a great deal, had a pretty severe wound, got over that all right, went out from Petersburg? I was in the battle before Petersburg, got my discharge from there. Remember me kindly to Mr. Lord. George W. Lolly. Goodbye. At the head of the message department is a standing advertisement which reads as follows. Our free circles are held at number 158 Washington Street, room number 4, upstairs, on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday afternoons. The circle room will be open for visitors at 2 o'clock. Services commence at precisely 3 o'clock, after which time... No one will be admitted. Donations solicited. On the days and at the hour mentioned in the above advertisement, quite an audience assembles to hear the messages Mrs. Conant may have to deliver. If a stranger present should request a message from one of his spirit friends, he would be told that a large number of spirits were seeking to communicate through that instrument, and each must wait his turn. Having read obituary notices in the files of old newspapers and the published list of those recently killed in battle, she has data for any number of messages. She talks in the style that she imagines the person would use, being one of the doctrines of spiritualism that a person's character and feelings are not changed by death. To make the humbug more complete, she narrates imaginary incidents, asserting them to have occurred in the earth experience of the spirit who purports to have possession of her at the same time she is speaking. Mediums in various parts of the country furnish her with the names and facts relative to different deceased people of their acquaintance, and those names and facts are used by her in supplying the message department of the Banner of Light. Time and again have leading spiritualists in various parts of the country endorsed as spiritual manifestations what was subsequently proved to be an imposture. Several years ago, a man by the name of Payne created a great sensation in Worcester, Massachusetts by causing a table to move without contact he claiming that it was done by spirits through his mediumship. He subsequently came to New York and exhibited the manifestation at the house of a spiritualist where he boarded. Payne was a very soft-spoken, good sort of a fellow, and appeared to be quite sincere in his claims to mediumship. He received no fee from those who witnessed his exhibition, and that fact, in connection with others, tended to disarm people of suspicion. His seances were held in the evening, and each visitor was received by him at the door, and immediately conducted to a seat next the wall of the room. The visitors all in and seated, Mr. Payne took a seat with the rest in the circle. In the middle of the room, a small table had previously been placed, and the gas had been turned partly off, leaving just enough light to make objects look ghostly. In order to get harmonized, singing was indulged in for a short time by members of the circle. 
Soon a number of raps would be heard in the direction of the table, and one side of that piece of furniture would be seen to rise about an inch from the floor. Some very naturally wanted to rush to the table and investigate the matter more closely, but pain forbade that. The necessary conditions must be observed, he said, or there would be no further manifestation of spirit power. As there was no one nearer to the table than six or eight feet, the fact of its moving very naturally astonished the skeptics present. Several seeing mediums who attended Mr. Payne's seances were able to see the spirits, so they declared, who moved the table. One was described as a big engine who cut various capers and appeared to be much delighted with the turn of affairs. Believers were wonderfully well pleased to know that at last a medium was developed through whom the inhabitants of another world could manifest their presence to mortals in such a way that no one could gainsay the fact. The invisibles freely responded by raps on the table to various questions asked by those in the circle. They thumped time to lively tunes and seemed to have a decidedly good time of it in their particular way. When the seance was concluded, Mr. Payne freely permitted an examination of his table. In the Sunday spiritual conferences, leading spiritualists gave an account of the manifestations of the spirits through Mr. Payne, and as believers congratulated themselves upon the existence of such indubitable facts. The spiritualist in whose house this exhibition of table-moving without contact took place was known as a man of strict honesty, and it was reasonably presumed that no mechanical contrivance could be used without his cognizance in thus moving a piece of his furniture, for the table belonged to him, and that he would countenance a deception was out of the question. There were in the city three gentlemen who had for some time been known as spiritualists, but they were very skeptical with regard to physical manifestations. They had, a short time before, detected the Davenports and other professed mediums in the practice of imposture, and they determined not to accept Payne's pretense to mediumship till after a thorough investigation of his manifestations they should fail to find a material cause for them. After attending several of his seances, those gentlemen concluded that Payne moved the table by means of a mechanical contrivance fixed under the floor. They made an appointment with him for a private seance. They met with him at his room. One of the three investigators stepped to the door of the room, locked it, put the key in his pocket, took off his coat, and told Mr. Payne that he was determined to search Payne's person, and that if he did not find about him a small, short iron rod by means of which, through a hole in the floor, a lever underneath was worked in moving the table, he would beg Payne's pardon and be, forever after, a firm believer in the power of disembodied spirits to move objects. This impressive little speech had a decided and instant effect upon the medium. Gentlemen, I might as well own up. Please to be quietly seated, and I will tell you all about it. And he did tell them all about it, subsequently repeating his confession before quite a number of disgusted and cheaply sold spiritualists at the New York Spiritual Lyceum. Whilst the family with whom Payne boarded was away one day in attendance at a funeral, he had taken up several of the floorboards of the back parlor, and on the underside of them affixed a lever with a crosspiece at the end of it, and in the end of the crosspiece bits of wire were inserted, the wire being just as far apart as the legs of the table to be moved. Small holes were made in the floorboards for the wire to come through to reach the table legs. The other end of the lever came within an inch or two of the wall. When all the arrangements were completed, and the table being properly placed in order to move it, 
Mr. Payne had only to insert one end of a short iron rod in a hole in the heel of his boot, put the other end of the rod through a hole in the floor just under the edge of the carpet near the wall, and then press the rod down upon the end of the lever. The movements necessary in fixing the iron rod to its place were executed while he was picking up his handkerchief that he had purposely dropped. The middle of the lever was attached to the floor, and the end with the crosspiece, being the heavier, brought the other end close up against the floor, the wires in the crosspiece having their points just within the bottom of the holes in the floor. The room was carpeted, and there were little marks on the carpet known only to pain that enabled him to know just where to place the table. Pressing down the end of the lever against the wall an inch would bring the wires in the crosspiece on the other end of the lever against the legs of the table and slightly raise the ladder. One of the wires would strike the table leg a very little before the other did, and that enabled the medium to very nicely wrap time to the tunes that were sung or played. Of course, no holes that anyone could observe would be made in the carpet by the passage of the wires through it. For appearance's sake, Payne, before his detection, visited by invitation the houses of several different spiritualists for the purpose of holding seances, but he never got a table to move without contact in any other than the place where he had properly prepared the conditions. The exhibiting mediums must, of course, contrive new tricks as fast as investigators show up their old ones. It is the universal method of all sorts of impostors to adopt new means of fooling people when their old ones are exposed. It evidently vexes the spiritualists to have their ghosts put with the monkeys in my museum. They can't help it, though, and it is my deliberate opinion that the monkeys are much the most respectable. I have no wish to displease any honest person, but the more the spiritualists squirm and snarl and scold and call names, the more they show that I am hurting them. Other spiritual facts have come to my hand some of them furnishing additional details about persons to whom I have already alluded, and others being important to illustrate some general tendencies of spiritualism. I believe Horace Greeley is right when he says that no one can reasonably be expected to exercise common sense unless he possesses it. It is quite natural, therefore, that many of the spiritualists lacking common sense, should pretend to have something better. Well, boys and girls, once again, it's time to put away the storybook and get some sleep. School day tomorrow. Subscribe to Valleycast and join the human oddities and a few just plain folks privileged to see behind the curtain of the sideshow, freak show, and variety arts of all kinds. You'll hear stories of famous performers, past and present, interviews with brave and skilled artists, and ideas you can use for your own acts. You'll find links on the webpage at ballycast.com and all previous episodes are available as well. We want you. You know, every episode webpage has a place to make comments. You need to shut up. And I have so enjoyed the many insightful and thoughtful comments. You ought to take a gun and you ought to blow your brains out, you imbecile. From you, the members of the Ballycast audience. Shut your fucking mouth! I read every one, and I hope you'll continue to express yourself 
fully and often. English, motherfucker, do you speak it? Thank you. Fuck you! Next episode, the annual Halloween episode, Blood from Ballycast's Tomb. Ballycast is produced by Wayne Kaiser for Blue Ridge Entertainment under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means you can keep it, copy it, share it with a friend, just tell them where it came from, don't change it, and don't sell it. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe at Ballycast.com. Visit us, link to us, subscribe to the podcast, and most importantly, enjoy. Thanks for riding. Please.